expect he'll crash this afternoon if he gets a chance and uh, probably poor Stephanie's ready to do that all the time. Uh, I have a couple of pictures to show you just uh, in case you haven't seen uh, Baby Maddox. That's how a guitar player measures his offspring, I guess. <clears throat> That's pretty neat. Isn't that great? Yeah, this is the only two pictures we've got this morning, but they're pretty good ones, I thought. Pretty good way to start the day to uh, take a peek at Maddox. Hey, turn in your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel 23. We continue our series this morning, Lion Chaser. Uh, we're going to do seven w- weeks' worth of, of the Lion Chaser series, and, and uh, last week we talked about defying odds. Today we're going to talk about facing our fears. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about overcoming adversity, embracing uncertainty, taking risks, seizing opportunities, and looking foolish. Those are the seven skills that a lion chaser needs, and it all basically hinges on a story, a fairly obscure story, I think, out of the Old Testament, uh, about a guy named Benaiah. And the, the, the real key verse that we, we operate off of, and I'll probably read this in every one of these uh, sermons that we do, just to remind us of who Benaiah is and what he did. Second Samuel 23, 20 says, Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant warrior, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And then it, just, it also talks about how he took on a, a giant Egyptian and took a spear from him and killed him with it. Benaiah was not somebody you wanted to mess with. Um, I think it'd be really easy for us to look at this story that happened some 3,000 years ago and, and to just do what we do a lot of times with Bible stories, which is to call them Bible stories and say, well, that's a neat story in the Bible, but you know, that was so long ago. And what, does, what possible uh, implications does that have for me in my life. But I'll bet you that if you were in that moment, you would have a different take on the whole thing. If you could have seen it, if you could have been Benaiah, and, and you could have smelled the breath of that lion as he roared at you, and if you could, if you're, I, I doubt seriously that, that uh, Benaiah ever forgot what it was like to hear that sound. Uh, if he, in fact, I'm sure he had to touch him in some way to, to finally take this lion down, and I, I bet he never forgot what it felt like, the power in an animal like that um, it's, it's just something that you would not ever forget. And I don't care how battle-tested you are and how many battle scars you've got on you, when you come into contact with something as ferocious as a lion and you're going to do battle with something like that, um, you're going to have a certain level of fear. If not just sheer terror, you're going to experience some fear. But you know what sets a lion ch- uh, chaser apart from, from those who are not lion chasers. The basic difference is that they don't run away from the things that scare them. They chase those things. That is counterintuitive for us. That is not normal. We don't typically think that way about the, the things that are in our life that, are, that make us afraid. I, I know in my life it's not uh, a lot of fun for me to think about chasing after things that make me frightened or that, that scare me in some way. Um, and I think that this reaction that we see out of Benaiah in Second Samuel 23 is probably the most improbable reaction in all of Scripture. I mean, you're going to, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but if, if you were to be walking along and your eyes lifted up and you also, all of a sudden made eye contact with a lion, I don't know what goes through your mind, but chase the lion down into a pit probably is not the first thought that, that comes to your mind. You're probably wondering where the trees are, where the rocks are, you know, how... what. If there's water around, my first question would be, can lions swim? 
You know, I'm looking for a way to get away from this lion because I don't think that my my first reaction would be, oh, let's chase this thing down into a hole because uh, typically speaking, I don't think the results would be very good in that instance. But what happens here is extremely counterintuitive, I think. And so, you know, when when Benaiah makes eye contact with this lion, Benaiah doesn't run away. The lion runs away and Benaiah gives chase. And he goes down into the hole and he takes it down. There was a a Russian uh, psychologist and physician back at the turn of the, uh, between the 20th, 19th and 20th centuries, yeah, I'm saying that right, 19th and 20th centuries, a guy named Ivan Pavlov, and you probably studied Pavlov when you were in psychology class in high school. Um, I don't remember a whole lot of psychology, uh, but I do remember learning about Pavlov, and I remember, you know, the, the whole concept was that he wanted to do some work where he, uh, he wanted to find out about conditioned reflexes, and we have Dr. Eglin in the room, so I feel really inadequate to talk about Pavlov this morning. I'll do my best. But he, would, he wanted to find out what triggers uh, those responses and, and, and how conditioned responses work and reflexes. And so he had some dogs, and what he did was he, he, would, he would feed the dogs, and he, typically when you put food in front of a dog, the dog salivates. And so he, he started to ring a bell every time he would... Uh, feed the dogs and eventually what he did was he just you know he'd ring the bell uh, put the food in front of the dog the dog would salivate and and so eventually he would ring the bell and no food but guess what the dog still salivates and so he was he was conditioning a response uh, in this in this dog um, that is an ancient idea I mean that we 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 are conditioned and we have conditioned reflexes uh, each one of us have different things I every day I walk my little dog Shay Shay I almost brought her this morning so that you could be introduced to Shay Shay and thought no I won't do that but um, I almost was going to demonstrate for you just hold up a dog treat and let you watch the slobber come out of her mouth and I thought that's probably really not Sunday morning stuff but I walk my dog I bring her back in and uh, we have this little routine she goes to the door she waits for me to open the door because she knows when she gets to the top of the stairs and she's got little bitty teeny tiny legs and she has to work her way up the stairs and when she finally gets to the top she turns around and she waits patiently for me um, to give her a dog treat and she knows that I'm going to reach behind me and grab a treat the thing is as she's making her way up the steps she's already anticipating that dog treat when she gets to the top and turns around she is already beginning to salivate knowing that the treat is coming so if I don't hurry up and get it to her immediately I've got a mess on the steps that I, I mean, I know it sounds gross, but I've got to clean this mess up on our stairs. So I'm really, I'm trying to open the door and grab the treat all in one concerted, you know, effort and to have it thrown to her by the time she gets to the top step. Because if I don't, I've got just a mess. And so uh, Aristotle called, the, called it the law of congruity. And he said, with the appearance of one, it will bring to mind the other. We, we've all got those things. I don't know about you, but one of the things I do, and, and I've never driven off with a gas tank in my car, with the gas hose still in my car. You know, I've never done that, but it is a huge fear of mine that I'm going to do that one of these days and look foolish. And so every day, when, or every time I fill up my car with gas, I shut the door. One of the, it's just instinctual for me. I check that rearview mirror and make sure that my door is closed, you know, just to make sure, and I, I don't know why that is, but that's just a, that's just a thing for me, it, I don't know whether it's the smell of the gas, or, you know, paying at the pump, or what it is, but close the door, check the tank uh, lid to make sure that it's closed, I don't know what your things are, but we all have conditioned reflexes, and sometimes they're good, 
and sometimes they're bad. God has conditioned us to feel guilty when we sin. That's a, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that when you sin, there is a conditioned reflex in you that says, I, I, this is a problem, and I need to do something about this. And so God has said, you, you can bring that to me. You can come, I want you to come, and I want you to confess those things to me. Um, and in and, and doing that, we, we then put ourselves in right relationship with him. It's, it's hard, but it's really the right thing to do. And so, you know, I had somebody one time, I was teaching a class and was talking about something, and, and it was a class for kids, but a, a, an adult was there, and he stood up and he said, well, I just think you're trying to make us feel guilty. And, you know, Campolo said it best. Tony Campolo one time said, uh, guilt is a perfectly good reaction to sin. That's exactly how you should feel when you have sinned. And so, uh, but you know what isn't healthy is when you feel guilty after you've been forgiven. When you know that God has forgiven you and you continue to go on and feel guilty about something that he has said, hey, I've forgiven it, I've forgotten it, moved past that, and I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table in my office from somebody and what they're really dealing with more than anything else is stuff that has happened in their past maybe that they're responsible for and they look at me and say, Brett, I, I just I cannot forgive myself and the typical reaction i have to that is well then what you're saying is that the death of jesus is not sufficient that's really what you're saying if you can't forgive yourself i mean god can forgive you god forgives you and what happened on the cross with jesus and so for you to say you can't forgive yourself is to say that that uh god's forgiveness isn't quite as good as yours you know that there's a there's a super forgiveness that you've got and that the death of jesus on the cross really wasn't enough to do it. Now, I really believe that none of us wants to think that. None of us, would, all of us would say, no, I don't think that. But if you're having trouble forgiving yourself, that's really where you're at. You're at a place where you're saying, no, death of Jesus isn't enough for me. God forgives our sins and forgets them. But I don't know that we can forget many times the things that we do, and that's where our problems start. There is a conditioned reflex I want us to look at this morning. Uh, in all four Gospels, there is the story of Peter denying Jesus uh, I want us to look at Luke 22, verse 60. Uh, well, you don't have to look at verse 60. Verse 61 is where I'll pick up. Luke 22, 60 says that Peter, as he was denying Christ the third time, because Jesus said, you know, Peter, by the time uh, this, this day's over, you will have denied me three. By the time the rooster crows on the third time, you will have denied me. Uh, I just messed that up. By the time the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And uh, Luke twenty two sixty tells us that uh, as Peter was denying Christ that third time, the rooster crowed. Um, and then verse 61 says this, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So as this is happening, you know, as, as the, Peter's really just really in the process of denying Christ and he hears this rooster and as all that's taken place, the Bible says that Jesus looked at Peter. You know, I, I wonder what kind of look that was. You wonder, what, what kind of look did, did Jesus give to Peter in that instant? I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, it would be interesting to hear what you think, but I think that it was a look of forgiveness. I think it was uh, a look of grace. I think it was a look of, of brokenheartedness that, you know, he, he knew that this was going to happen, and yet at the same time, he, he, uh, he felt such compassion for Peter in, in a... 
which is really what he feels for us when he looks at us in the state we're in. I think it's the same way he looks at us, you know, just this, this, uh, this love, this longing that, that he wants the best for us, and, and when we fail, it's just a, you know, there's a disappointment associated with it, but there's this undying love and grace that comes with it. Uh, the second part of verse 61 says, Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. It's hard for me to conceive of any bigger failure in Peter's life than this. And you wonder if Peter felt a twinge of guilt every time uh, after that, that he, he woke up in the morning and he heard a rooster crow. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but a sight or a sound or a smell can trigger responses in my life. I mean, I can hear certain, I heard a song the other day, the, the kids and I play this game in the car, we listen to the radio, and, and my radio has a, a way that we can hit a button and it'll tell us who's singing the song and what the name of the song is. And so we play this game, who can name the artist fastest? And I'm the king, by the way, they can't beat me yet because I'm older, I have more experience than them. But, but uh, you know, we'll hear, it's almost like Name That Tune. Of course, if you're, under, if you're under 30, you have no idea what I'm talking about with Name That Tune. But, but it's, I can hear the first couple of notes, and I'll say, you know, that's the Rolling Stones, or that's the Who, or whoever it is. And, and the kids, are, you know, the kids are all, you know, like, daggone it. So, I, and the other day, I heard a song, and I told my son, I said, you know, that just takes me back to the first summer that I ever spent in ministry as a youth pastor in a small town in Indiana, just just hearing that song, I can remember driving down the road. I can smell smells. Uh, you know, uh, a certain kind of perfume reminds me of my sister. Uh, a certain commercial jingle reminds me. There's one, the Intel. You know, the little Intel thing that they they've used. They don't use. You don't hear it much anymore. But that was a really popular commercial about the time I was being called to this church. And from then on, for the last 15 years, every time I hear that Intel little little sound the first thing i think is is preparing to come to Terre Haute, which is uh, is a um, you know just takes me back certain smells do that uh certain foods can do that i think the sound of a rooster crowing had produced some feelings of guilt in peter i i think that um you know th- there aren't too many roosters around here maybe you live out in the country and you have that going on but there aren't many i don't hear any roosters where i live um but Two years ago, we went to Thailand, and um, those that went to Thailand, I'm sure this is true also of the ones from Honduras. How many of you have been to Honduras? Been to Honduras? Do you hear roosters crowing in Honduras? No? No? Yeah? You're saying yes. Well, in Thailand, we heard roosters crowing. Um, and in Thailand, we, I don't know about anybody else who went to Thailand. I didn't sleep very well when I was in Thailand, and so uh, about the time I would get into a good uh, cycle of sleep, these crazy roosters would start crowing and and you know not only were they crazy they had this uh, their internal clock i think was just a little uh, malfunction and the snooze button on the roosters didn't work either because you know you you want to shut that up and you just couldn't do it i mean they were they they seemed to be everywhere um imagine a context like that for peter and every morning when he wakes up after he has denied christ three times he has to hear the rooster crow. And, and you just think that, that probably the devil used the, the, the rooster crow as a constant reminder for Peter of what you've done. You failed. You, you, you didn't 
uh, live up to everything that you said you were going to do for Christ. You were the one who said you would never deny Christ, and you denied him three times. And the rooster crow is, is my way of reminding you every morning that you failed miserably uh, with your God. And I think that's exactly what the devil wants to do in your life and in my life. I think that there are certain things, certain conditioned responses that we have sometimes that the devil just wants to come along and say, well, I want to remind you what you've done. And I want to remind you why you're not nearly as spiritual as you think you are. I want to remind you why you, you don't have any business going to church. You don't have any business saying prayers. You don't have any business witnessing to somebody or telling somebody about Jesus. I mean, you of all people have no business talking to somebody else about Jesus. I think that the devil uses experiences and failures in our life uh, and certain rooster crows. May, I don't know what it is for you, but I'm sure there's something that just reminds you every now and then, you know what, I failed miserably there. I just, I didn't do all that I could have done. And I think he wants to remind you of your failures. I would suggest that Jesus came to condition your reflexes differently. And I would suggest that he came to do that the the way he does it with everyone, and that is with grace. Jesus said, instead of hating your enemies, pray for them. That's how Jesus conditions our reflexes. You know, he said, don't don't hate your enemies. That's the, that's the intuitive reaction that we have is to, to hate our enemies. And Jesus said, that's not how I want you. It's not how I deal with you. That's not how I want you dealing with other people. We typically want to be the first ones at the table. Jesus said, the first will be last. The last will be first. Jesus said, if you find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. Jesus wants to recondition our reflexes. When we get slapped on the cheek, we aren't supposed to slap back in some Pavlovian fashion we're supposed to turn the other cheek that is not intuitive that that does not come naturally for us john 21 peter says to the other disciples this is post denial okay this little thing that we're going to talk about now in john 21 he says i'm going fishing now it's possible i suppose that peter really did plan to just you know he just decided he wanted to go fishing i wonder though if that's really what's at the heart of that little sentence when peter said i'm going to go fishing uh, because uh, I think it's really possible that um, Peter thought that his career as a disciple was over. I think it's possible for, for, uh, for Peter to have thought, you know, I've, I've failed so miserably that there's no way I can really be any uh, use to God, at least not the way I thought I was going to be, and I'm not going to be the big superstar disciple that, that I once anticipated that I was going to be. And I think that he thought he had failed one too many times. And I think that that, that he was going to go back to maybe his former way of life. I'm just going to go be a fisherman again because the whole fishing for men concept, it doesn't seem to have worked very well for me. I think there's nothing that Satan would have liked more than for Peter to have given up, to have gone back onto his boat, gone back to the Sea of Galilee, and spent the rest of his life fishing for fish instead of fishing for men. But Jesus is going to recondition Peter, and he's going to do it in a profound way. In a sense, I think he he reinstates Peter three times. Uh, In John 21, three different times, Jesus says, do you love me? And uh, on the third time, Peter gets a little bit offended. Peter gets a little worked up by the whole thing. And, you know, you say, well, why would Jesus reinstate Peter three times? Because Jesus understood that, the, he understood a reconditioned response way before Pavlov did. You know, Jesus was way ahead of the game on the whole study of, of Pavlovian dogs. I mean, he, he had all that down a long time ago, and he knew that he had to come back and retract Peter. He had to come back and, and, and set him on a, a path where, where he understood that he was useful, that he was loved, 
that he had something to offer the kingdom, that his failures weren't permanent. Jesus knew what he was doing. You know what he did? Until this week, I'd never really made the correlation between these two ideas. But John 21 verse four says, it was early in the morning. This exchange between Peter and Jesus, where he's asking him, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times. And on the third time, Peter gets a little worked up. All that happened early in the morning. When do roosters crow? Early in the morning. I think this very well could have been intentional on Jesus' part. And I just wonder if there were roosters within earshot. I wonder if, you know, as they stood on the bank of the, the shore there, if, they, if, if there weren't roosters crowing somewhere off in the distance that Peter might have been able to hear. I mean, you have to use your sanctified imagination for things like that. But I just wonder if that's going on uh, in this scene. And every time between the denial of Jesus up until now, the rooster had crowed to remind Peter just how badly he'd failed. Now Jesus would take that rooster crow and he would recondition the response and he would associate it with grace and forgiveness. A reminder that God is in the business of second chances. God is in the business of second chances. F. Scott Fitzgerald said, never confuse a single mistake with a final mistake. I think the grace of God turns final mistakes into single mistakes. I think the grace of God says, you know what? That looks like a really bad thing. But it doesn't have to be that way forever. And I can forgive it, and we can move on. What is so remarkable to me is not that Peter would put his faith in Jesus, but that Jesus would put his faith in Peter. And that Jesus would put his faith in you and would put his faith in in me at his lowest point jesus denied uh, peter denies jesus three times and jesus puts his faith in peter and jesus gives him a second chance satan has two tactics and he's used them for a long long time and it's really the only two things that he knows and he's very very effective with the two things first of all he wants to remind me and you of our worst failures he would love nothing more than for you to wake up every day of your life and the first thing you think about are your failures so that those are the obstacles in your way all day to prevent you from getting into a relationship with someone that would be healthy and vibrant to be able, for you to be able to, to talk to someone about the Lord, for you to be able to talk to the Lord. I think that, that, that Satan would put those kind of obstacles in your way. He wants to produce as much discouragement in your life as he possibly can. And one of the ways he'll do that is he will constantly remind you of how many times you've failed. Second of all, I think he wants to remind you uh, as much as he can of your potential failures. He wants to remind you of your potential failures. You know what we call that? We call that fear. We, we get afraid of the possibility of failure. You say, why don't you do that? Well, I'm afraid, and you, know, and you finish the sentence however you want, but, but it always starts with, I'm afraid. And he, I, it, literally, I think Peter wants to, or Paul, uh, Satan wants to scare the heaven out of you is really what he's up to. He wants to take the things that you possibly could do and say, you know, you know that's not going to work. You, you know that you're not prepared for that. You know that that's, that's really something for somebody else. That's not something for the likes of you. And instead of going to the ends of the earth to fill the Great Commission, uh, when you let your fears and your failures get what you'll just cower back and you won't engage and you won't do some of the things that God calls you to do. I remember <laughs> first summer I spent in in full-time ministry it was 1986 and I was at the Reddington Christian Church and and Reddington had a a um, had a softball team and if you know me you know that I love to play softball in fact 
one of the prerequisites for me to be able to go to a church is that they have to have a softball team, and I, it really makes me feel good when one of the prerequisites of the church is that whoever they're going to hire has to play softball, so it's, you know, it's a good match that way. Well, this church was kind of like that, and um, I immediately got to play with the team and really had a great time, and we played all year and, and, and just had a great time playing ball, made really good friends, and the, the preacher's son and I got to be really close, and the the last game of the year was the championship and we were in the championship game and we were playing you know as as much as churches have rivals because we really do want to hit them in the name of Jesus we want to beat them Um, we we were playing our rival for the championship and it came right down to the seventh inning and we're in the field and we're trying to hang on you know to a to a, a lead and we've blown the lead and now it's just a matter of of if we can get one out um, we, we will win the game by one run. And so um, third base was open, and their best hitter was up. And the, I knew I could look over and see on the on-deck the on circle that the guy that was coming up next was a guy that had hit the ball to me three times that night. He couldn't run. Uh, he was, his knees were, were you know, worn out. He had big braces on him. His name was Noah. I'll never forget this. And the guy that was at bat, we called him Razor. And he, Razor was just really, really good. And he could just hit the thunder out of the ball. So um, we get ready to start pitching to Razor, and I'm thinking, what are we doing? So I, I said, hold on a minute. So I called timeout, went to the pitcher, and I said, we need to put him on base. So we walked their best hitter to bring up the guy that has hit the ball to me three times that night. I've thrown him out three times already in the evening. We're going to load the bases, counting on the fact that Noah's going to hit the ball to me. I'm going to field the ball, shovel it to the second baseman. We're out of the inning, and we win the game, championship. So uh, we do all that, and it goes great right up until the point that Noah hits the ball right at me. And I'm, I'm down in my crouch, and I'm ready to field the ball, and you know it's, it's time to just scoop it and shovel past the second base he's out and we walk off the field and the ball went right through my legs right through my legs the guy on third scores the guy on second scores we lose the game I, I marched off the field I got my bat and my bag and my stuff and threw it all in there and threw it over my shoulder and walked to the car and promptly drove off and left the preacher's son that I had ridden, brought to the game I left him <laughs> I was so mad, I forgot all about him, just drove off and left him at the ballpark. I had some choices to make. Now, I, you know, it's, it's not super dramatic because it's just a softball game and it's just softball and it's not the end of the world, but I did have some choices to make next, next spring when the season rolled around. Do you want to play again? Do you want to subject yourself to that kind of ridicule again? Because you know the guys are never going to forget that, and I, believe me, these guys, we were so close, they razzed me the whole winter. You know, maybe we can get a shortstop that can catch the winning, you know, thing. And, and um, because up until then, when, when Noah would come up, I mean, I can literally, I can honestly tell you that when Noah came up to, to bat, and I, I just knew he was going to hit the ball to me. He had every time. I wanted him to hit the ball to me. I, 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 would, I was counting on it. I, I, I wanted to be the one that caught it and threw him out. But then after that happened, uh, there were a couple of times when the next season started and when we got into a tight situation, you can always tell a good ball player by, by whether or not he wants the ball hit to him that's how you kind of tell the the ones that are really worth their salt are the ones that are you know the whole time they're they're in a a pressure situation they're saying hit it to me hit it to me hit it to me and and so you know what happened the next time i was in a similar situation 
I fielded the ball, flipped the ball to second base. We turned a double play, got out of the inning. No, I don't think that's what happened. I don't even really remember what happened. It doesn't matter really what happened. What matters is that I re-engaged. That's what matters. What matters is that when you fail, you have a choice to make. You, when you're afraid to fail, you've got a choice to make. Am I going to re-engage and try again, or am I just going to let that defeat me and keep me from, from ever coming alongside and doing something great with my life? Now, you know, I'm talking about life now. I'm not talking about a, a silly softball game. We're, we've, we've made a jump here. We're talking about how the devil now wants to come and remind you of the things that you've done wrong to say, hey, you don't have any business doing that. We, we coach over at, at, at Terrytown, and one of the things that you face constantly when the kids, you know, when the kids are real little and you're, the coaches are pitching to them, you hardly ever see a kid get hit because the coaches can do a pretty good job. But when you turn a six-year-old or a seven-year-old loose on a pitcher's mound with a hard ball and you send your son up there and say, go get him, Tiger, you know, and they, they drag their bat up and it's twice as big as they are and their helmet doesn't even fit real good and they stand in there and you're thinking, oh, good, he is going to get killed. He's just going to get hit so hard. And when they do, and they always do, and as a coach, I don't know how many times I've, I've rubbed a little elbow or, you know, rubbed a little back and said, hey, are you okay? And we're going to get him now. We're going to make him pay for that. We're going to steal second base. That's what we're going to do. We're going to steal second base. You know, we try and ramp him up a little bit. But, but the real challenge comes, not trying to get him to run bases, and sometimes that's a challenge, but the real challenge comes. Do you know when it comes? Next time up. The next time up when you're putting that little helmet on his head and you pat him on the rear end and you say, okay, go get him, Tiger. Come on, you can do it. And he's looking over his shoulder, and he's, he would give every, <laughs> he doesn't own a lot, but what he's got, he'd give you to not have to go bat again, you know? Because the last place he wants to be, and he is scared to death, he's going to get hurt. And, I, you know, I'm proud of a lot of things when I coach, when I see little kids do things, when I see them learn. But I don't know that I'm ever prouder of a kid than when they've been plunked pretty good, and the next time up, they strap on, you know, their helmet, and they, they carry their bat up there, and they stand in the batter's box, and they try to hit that ball. I mean, that says a lot about a little kid. And I, I probably have lavished more praise on a kid after they've done something like that than I have when they've made a big catch or when they've made a scored a big run or something like that. When I see a kid overcome that kind of fear, I just, man, I just gush with praise for them, trying to help them to see. That's a huge thing. Now, here's the point. The point is that from a relational perspective, when you've stepped in the batter's box, you've been hurt. You've gotten into relationships where somebody hurt you and it can make you jaded and it can make you get you to the place where you don't want to engage anymore because I might get hurt and the devil says as long as I can keep you at a place where you don't want to engage other people I can keep you from being effective for Christ and so we we have our own little batter's box that we refuse to step into some of you have been rejected either by a parent or by a, a boss or by a, a sibling or or, or a, a you know a friend or whatever and you say I, i'm just not ready to step back in I, I can't i can't do it i won't do it the only way that god's going to be able to use you the only way that you're going to be able to have an impact on the kingdom is that you re-engage that you put your helmet on you stand back in there you say you know what i got hit but i'm going to overcome it i'm going to stand in here and i'm going to do something great because he wants to do something in you and through you and as long as you let your fear keep you from engaging the devil wins and you never are able to fill the great commission call on your life the way god really has called you to maybe for you it's the fear of failure you can't allow your failures 
and fears to keep you out of the batter's box. Jesus is calling you to some big things. Jesus is calling you to things that you would look at him and you say, that's too big for me. I mean, Brett, there's no way. I think God's calling me to this, but he can't be because he's got to know how afraid of that I am. And I would respond to that. If you're afraid of it, I'm sure God's calling you to it. Because God gets glory when you face your fear. God gets glory when, when something scares the heaven out of you and you stand up and say, you know what? I'm going to trust God on this, and I, I may look foolish at the end of the day, and that's really the last of the series is looking foolish, uh, which is a lot of our problem, I think. But I'm going to face my fears, I'm going to step in the batter's box, and I'm going to do this. And I'm not going to let my failures keep me away from it. First Peter 5.8 is one of the most vivid pictures in Scripture. Uh, earlier I compared Satan to a rooster that's outside our door crowing to remind us of our failures but that really pales in comparison to what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to this. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. I think the chase the lion metaphor uh, really takes on a double meaning here. I think that God wants to raise up a generation of lion chasers who don't just run away from evil. I think that God wants to raise up a generation of lion chasers who want to put the enemy to flight. Who chases the lion. Even though that lion might have a loud roar, might have long claws, might be very powerful, but who is no match for the lion of the tribe of Judah who lives in you and lives in me. There are two places in Scripture where we're told to resist the devil one is first peter 5 9 and it says resist him standing firm in the faith but the second one listen to this this is james chapter 4 resist the devil and he will flee from you that little word flee in greek is the word fugo and it means to run away god hasn't called us to run away from the things that scare us he has called us to pursue them he has called us to set them to flight Lion chasers aren't to run away from the enemy. We're to chase the enemy. We're to resist the enemy so that he runs away from us. Spiritually speaking, how do you do that? How do you, how do you chase a roaring lion that seeks to devour you? Well, it starts, I think, with understanding our authority in Christ. If you don't understand the authority that is yours in Christ, uh, then you're not going to have a lot of success in your life overcoming uh, your fears because you're never going to operate from the base that says, hey, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world but if you understand that authority it changes everything what did jesus do when he was tempted he quoted scripture you go to that exchange and you see where jesus is is under fire from the devil in the wilderness and what jesus did constantly with him was he, he everything that that satan said he turned it around and he quoted scripture back at satan he knew that ephesians 6 17 says that the the word of god is a sword of the spirit you know there's two things that you have in your hand when you talk about from ephesians 6 when you talk about the 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 armor of god you know you've heard that about the you know all the helmet and the breastplate and all that there's the shield of faith which is a defensive weapon and then there is the sword of the spirit which is an offensive weapon god doesn't expect you to just hide behind the shield he expects you to be go on the offensive to set the lines in your life to flight to have them flee when you resist your life basically comes down to this are you going to base your life on your circumstances 
Or are you going to hold tightly to the promises found in Scripture? Now, we're almost done, but I just want to, I want to just share with you the kind of promises in Scripture that I'm talking about. When you read Scripture, do, do, does your spirit cling to the promises that are there, and do they fuel your life to be able to overcome the fears in your life? Scripture's like this, Psalm 37. If the Lord delights in a man's way, he makes his steps firm. The person who really triumphs in life when life just constantly, it's just a barrage of bad news, and it's a, it's a barrage of things that aren't good, and, aren't, and your life's not going well. You ever watch somebody go through that stuff, and you say, how in the world do they have a smile on their face? How do they come to church and lift up songs of praise? How do they even pray? I mean, if I was going through what they're going through in their life, I think I would just fall apart. And you say, how are they doing that? You know how they're doing that? They read things like this. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. The people who handle their life in a way that you admire it, they're reading these kind of verses and they believe these things and they're, they're clinging to these kind of promises. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What will it be in your life? Lion chasers hang on to the promises of God prayer puts the enemy to flight when you're under pressure when you face things that you don't really know how to handle it's really a good idea to just stop down for five minutes and just say god i don't even know what to pray i'm scared to death but i want you to be glorified in my life and if it means i got to stare this thing down then help me to do it that sets the enemy to flight praise Worship sets the enemy to flight. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You cannot worry and worship at the same time. It is impossible to do both. You will either worry about the problems in your life and, and you, you'll worry about the things that make you afraid or you will praise God in spite of them and those things will become a lot smaller in your life and much better, uh, easier for you to deal with. Don't let mental lines keep you from experiencing everything that God wants you to experience. The lines in your life are gonna prowl they're going to growl. They're going to try and back you into a corner. They're going to try and make you cower in fear. They're going to try and make you feel small in life. I believe this. I believe that our greatest experiences double as our scariest experiences. I believe that the greatest experiences, the greatest possibility in your life for, for glory, for God, come when you are tempted to be afraid. They come at some of the scariest times. I told you two years ago we went to Thailand. Now, I wouldn't tell you that I was petrified to go to Thailand because I wasn't. I didn't really want to go to Thailand. I, my, basically, my mouth had written a check that my, my body had to cash because I said if we ever went to Thailand, I would go with the group. And dang it, they went to Thailand, so I had to go. I'm a homebody. I, wanna, I like America. I don't care if I ever leave. You know, It's a great place. And all of a sudden, we're getting on this plane in the middle of a, what can only be described as a snowstorm. Anybody that went, am I right? It was a snow, they were de-icing our plane. We were the last flight out of, the, out of, out of the Chicago's O'Hare Airport that day. And it was like 10 o'clock in the morning or something, you know. We were it. I mean, I could show you a picture of the plane. You'd say, there's no way that plane took off. I'd say, way, because we were on it. 
And, and I, I land in this foreign country, and the only person that I know who speaks any Thai is Rick Walden and his wife. And so you, I, I'm just, I'm, wherever they went, that's where I was. I was right behind. Rick, where's Rick and Kathy? Because that's where I'm going to be. We went, you know, if we go out in public somewhere, I almost felt like I needed one of those coiled things that they put on your wrist when you're a little kid, you know, so that you, you know, one of those. And we were with some, another couple, um, Mike and Sheila Murphy, and they just love going on these mission trips, and she, she's full of adventure, and she's saying, you, you were afraid to come? And I'm like, listen, I can't read that sign. I, I don't know what that says. They're, they're driving on the wrong side of the road. This is freaking me out, okay? Finally, I felt a little better when we walked into a McDonald's. I wasn't really sure when the person who served me was dressed like a girl, and I could see the Adam's apple said he was a boy. That's a whole different thing, but... but it was just a different environment for me, okay? It was, it was, I was completely out of my element, and it was strange. But you know what? Looking back, Thailand was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I think about what I would have missed if I had not given myself the chance, and if I had said, no, you're going to go to Thailand. You're going to be a part of a different culture, and you're going to be around people that don't speak the same language as you, and you're not going to know where you're going. I'm telling you, the mountain we went up to get to the village in Wing Hang. You, you have never seen anything like it in your life. We got stopped by guards halfway up the thing. Jim Chaplin is driving a truck. He's got no driver's license for Thailand. I'm thinking, we, we are all going to jail. Right now, we're, you know, I'm going to be some bad man's boyfriend for the rest of my life. It's going to be terrible. <laughs> But I look back and, and, oh, what God taught me in Thailand. Was it scary? Yeah, it was a little scary. Was I out of my element? Yeah. Was I uncomfortable? Absolutely. I would not trade my trip to Thailand for, for all the money you would offer me. It just was just this incredible. I still talk about um, the things that I saw and heard. I, I was, was home over Christmas and I had the, uh, the, the movie that we showed when we came back, and I showed my, my brother. And as I'm showing this movie, I, I'm tearing up, you know, thinking about all the cool things that happened in Thailand. But I had to be afraid. There was adrenaline rushing through his veins, I'm sure, but he, there, there had to be a part of Benaiah that, you know, as he engages this beast, I mean, look how big this thing is. And you think about, I'm going to take this down. There had to be that moment of, what in the world am I doing? Have I lost my mind? But he chased the lion, and he didn't run away, and he tracked the lion into a snowy pit, and he took it down. You wonder how many times, as Benaiah was tucking his kids into bed, he told them the story about the time daddy took down the lion. You know what? I want stories that my life tells to my kids as I tuck them into bed. I want to be the daddy that takes down lions. I want to be the daddy that overcomes fears. I want to be able to tell stories to my kids and to my grandkids. Yeah, I was afraid, but it didn't let that stop me. I want to be like Benaiah. If you will face your fears, God will do some amazing things in your life. And he will tell incredible stories with you. When you're chasing lions, it will, it will scare the living daylights out of you. 
you will think that there's no way your body can cash the check that your mouth just wrote. That is when you will feel most alive. That is when you will get the greatest experiences in your life. That is when God will teach you the most because God will not teach you very much in your easy chair. God will teach you a lot when you're fighting lions. And it's when you will feel the most dependent on God and it is when you will feel the most vibrant and the most alive that you've ever felt in your life. And it is the moment that God can do some incredible things in you. If you've never come to Christ, you can't know what abundant, joyful, radiant, vibrant living is until you have totally committed your life to Christ and said, God, you take me wherever you want me to go. And you tell with me whatever story you want my life to tell, but I am yours. That is a life worth living. And that's the life we invite you to if you've never given your life to Christ. When we stand and sing in a few moments, you can respond and you can say, I want to be a lion chaser. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I hope you'll do that. Let's pray together. Father, we, we, we certainly aren't uh, in any shortage of things to make us afraid in life. There's plenty of things that can make us cower in fear. There's plenty of, of lions, so to speak, for us to tangle with. The question is, are we, A, are we doing all this in our own power? Because if we are, we're just stupid. But beyond that, are we trusting you? And have we said, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world? And yeah, the lion's big and he's bad and he's making all kinds of noise, but I'm saved by Jesus. Father, help us to see this morning that some of the stuff you want to do in us, you can only do when we really are engaged in something that's bigger than us where we are completely dependent on you to pull it off Father that's the kind of church we want to be that's kind of how we make decisions around here because if it's something we can do ourselves it's really not worth doing Lord we don't want to be stupid and we don't want to bite off more than you can chew which is really you, there's, there, we can't do that but Help us, Father, to stand up, to ignore growls and snarls and teeth, and to chase that which growls at us and watch it flee. And in that process, you will get glory. In that process, people will see our total and utter dependence on you, and you will tell great stories with our life. God, that's the kind of people we want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.